This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Canadians are grappling with the devastating discovery of unmarked graves of about a thousand Indigenous children on two sites of former residential schools. Salma Makwa, NDP MPP for Kiwetnung, and he is also the critic of Indigenous and treaty relations. He's been calling for the release of records, all the records relating to this. And a few days ago, the Oblight Order, which ran a lot of these schools, um, apparently agreed to do this, though they have made that promise beforehand. And they also say that the release is hampered in some cases by privacy laws. Salma Makwa joins me now. Saul, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me there, Libby. Uh, Well, you were calling for the release of these records, and a few days ago, as I said, the Oblates said, yes, we will agree. They made a pledge, uh, but they are saying that they are hampered by privacy laws. Do you buy that? You know, uh, sometimes uh, the laws, uh, settler laws, uh, um, sometimes uh, when individual rights versus the collective rights collective, you know, sometimes overrided, and sometimes I, I do not agree with that just because it's just so much, uh, uh, you know, these documents, uh, archives uh, could tell a story on where these children are or how they died. Mm-hmm. I mean, but what I'm asking is, do you think that they are making a valid point, or do you think that they are perhaps hiding behind this? Well, certainly, I think, uh, you know, there's certainly a lot of information that's there. Um, and I think uh, we need those reports or the, those documents released as soon as possible, because you never know <laughs> what's behind them. Like, why are they hiding behind them? Like, I can certainly say it's... Uh, there's, it's possible that they're hiding behind that. Now, I, I'm not a lawyer, but but it's my understanding that that certain privacy rights expire when when you die. Yes, uh, me neither. I'm not a lawyer as well, but I think that it's uh, it could tell uh, a lot of uh, true telling stories about these uh, children that have gone missing that have never come home, and I think uh, it's so important that the collection of these. Uh, uh, anti-mortem data, you know, uh, from prospective families could tell these stories. And uh, and I think, um, you know, uh, when we talk about, uh, you know, starting to exhume and examine the remains, you know, again, uh, again, repatriation, uh, identification. And not only that, the management of uh, unidentified remains could be could be so important that uh, that we need this data. How many more of of these unmarked graves would you expect to find, and and do you have a, a notion of how many might be here in Ontario? You know, and that's the and that's the work that needs to be done. Uh, I don't have any numbers, but I know uh, communities, families are starting to reach out to me. You know, where they want to repatriate. Uh, their family members that never came home, their children, their siblings that never came home. So it's going to be a very, uh, it's going to be a very uh, hard discussions that we're going to have when we talk about uh, trying to repatriate, uh, you know, family members. And you know, it's going to come on repeat, 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 and repeat. Can you tell us a little bit more about the people who have been reaching out to you? Well, uh, you know, uh, they. Uh, um, they know where they were buried, and they just never had a chance to bring them home. And these, uh, you know, the siblings are elderly people already, and they, they like to bring them home. And I was able to experience about 10 years ago this uh, young young 
uh, you know, back about 10 years ago, I think it was t- August 2011, I seen a repatriation of a student. His name was Charlie Hunter out of uh, St. Anne's Residential School. He had died in uh, St. Anne's and Fort Albany, and um, they repatriated him back to Pewanek First Nation. And um, it was like a an actual burial, an actual, uh, and uh, it felt, you know, but they were, it was, uh, and I see that in repeat, and I think that's really, uh, and that's what people are wanting to, uh, wanting to see. So we're just getting information from the families and then forwarding that information to wherever the, the site that they were buried at. So And w- with those previous cases, how did the families know where their loved ones were buried? Were they informed at the time or what? They were informed after they were buried. And uh, so uh, they know, but they never took on the repatriation process themselves. And uh, and I think, uh, and that's the one that, and um, the one I spoke about from 10 years ago, it wasn't paid for by the governments or any of the governments. It was done by uh, donations from the you know, people in Toronto to repatriate. And at that time, it cost them uh, $20,000 to do that. I'm sure. Um, and, you know, we've also heard very distressing reports that, you know, not all, all of these children were even named, that sometimes they were designated by a number. Yes, uh, I, uh, yes, that's the, that's what they did. And uh, they weren't uh, you know, siblings. They weren't, uh, they were separated uh, within the, the uh, within the schools. Um, they were given names and um, I visited one of the, uh, the residential schools uh, in Brantford uh, a few weeks ago and that's what they said. Uh, they were given numbers and they were separated. Like, make sure They made sure the numbers were uh, far apart so they wouldn't see each other. So um, that's, what, uh, that's how they recognized them because they wanted to take away uh, their names and they, they, uh, they just, people were just uh, numbered. Salma Makwa, what are your priorities in the coming weeks uh, in dealing with this? You know, uh, I think one of the things is, uh, you know, I know uh, a lot of people have come to me about, uh, you know, what do we do for Canada Day? And I think uh, Canada Day is not going to be the same. And I I know, um, you know, I, I wish I could wish everyone a happy Canada Day, but I cannot. But I think uh, we need to... Uh, you know, start looking at, uh, you know, uh, start moving forward in a good way where we accept the truth, um, you know, where there is accountability. And the, the, the Canada Day will be more just of a, a day of reflection and uh, not a day of picnics and parties. And I think uh, we will continue um you know, to mourn for our lost children and, you know, find the strength to help a better path forward toward a better future. But I think uh, with the searches in Ontario, especially, um, you know, we need to be able to provide those resources and uh, to the communities who want to start searching for their, uh, um, their uh, ancestors, their, their children. And, uh, and I think it's so important that we start getting the, uh, the records of, at all levels, whether it's death records, hospital records, you know, uh, whatever records that they may be there. And uh, not only that, like, you know, universities have uh, permitted professors to participate in medical experiments that happened in Indian residential schools. And we need to be able to figure those out, get those copies as well, because, again, we need to determine when they died, how they died uh, from those records. Salma Makwa, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, we are going to uh, we are going to explore different aspects of this story after the break. Before we go to break, I, I'm going to take a call from Clay and Ajax. Hello, Clay. How are you? Fine. How are you? Good. This is another blade on our past. Unfortunately, we're not a perfect country like everybody would like to think we are. Libby, the Roman Catholic Church is one of the probably one of the richest organizations in the world. As far as I'm concerned, they should be paying for the excavation and all the radiation treatments that they need to find these bodies and relocating them and that with their families. I mean, that's going to cost millions of dollars. Yep. 
It is. And I don't think the taxpayer should be responsible. I think the government should be, which is still, still a taxpayer in the long run. But they should be covering the expenses. Never mind uh, Justin Trudeau trying to get the Pope over here to apologize. Apologies are beyond what we need. Uh, that's quite a thought, uh, Clay and Ajax. Thank you for that. Thank you, Libby. Bye-bye. Bye. Right. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we will be talking to uh, an Indigenous elder and a professor of archaeology who wrote a report on this years ago when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. The thinking is that more unmarked graves will be found on the sites of other former residential schools, and Indigenous elders have pledged to identify each one of them. It's a promise that will take a great deal of money and expertise and will undoubtedly bring with it a lot of pain. Let me give the numbers out again. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. I'm now joined by Kat Krieger, who is an Indigenous elder, traditional teacher, and knowledge keeper of the Cayuga Nation Turtle Clan, and Dr. Scott Hamilton, a professor of anthropology at Lakehead University. Thank you so much for being with us. Good afternoon. How are you doing? Good afternoon. Kat Krieger, uh, so uh, we haven't spoken since all of this came to light. Um, what are your thoughts and what have you been hearing from people in your community? You know, I, I'm hearing what many, <clears throat> I'm hearing what many people are hearing. Um, that is the truth is starting to come out. And in this place and space that we live, uh, to have things, bad things hidden away, uh, let me rephrase that, to have the, the knowledge of um, some of our history hidden away is, is perplexing. One has to ask why that would be done, and, and the obvious answer comes up, this, this is a, a terrible and dark thing. You know, for, for myself, this, the, you know, the first announcements of 215 Kamloops was staggering, to say the least. The, um, you know, the thoughts I had in chatting with my wife was, this, this is the beginning of, of, of the truth or, you know, part of the truth that's coming out. And then the, the next one is announced. And I know we're looking at a road that's going to show us many, many more. So for me, you know, and, you know, I formerly worked at the university and I was talking with some of my students. I was saying, just imagine it's graduation time. That's what's coming up. And that's what you're going to be called. You're going to be called graduates of this educational system that we, uh, all the educational system. And yet, for us, you weren't a graduate, you were a survivor. And I thought the two other ends of the scale keep popping up in my mind. Mm-hmm. We, we had these systems that we were forced to go to, and if you made it through, you were called a survivor. And you, you certainly didn't come out with like a diploma or anything like that. So these thoughts have been running through my mind quite a bit. The truth needs to be spoken, um, and sometimes get truth out of people is, is difficult, whether it's hidden records or people protecting themselves or institutions protecting themselves. Um, but these, these are the All of the thoughts. above. Yeah, and D- many more. And many more. Dr. Hamilton, you wrote a report entitled, Where Are the Children Buried? for the National Truth and Reconciliation Commission more than five years ago. Uh, uh, briefly, like, what did you find there and what happened to that report? Well, it was intended as a background resource to be used by the commissioners in writing their final report. Um, It was produced uh, very, I finished it and submitted it very early in 2015. And the reports of the commission came out a few months later I was expecting that there would be this kind of response, um, but to my surprise, there wasn't really that much of a outpouring, that much of a response at that time. And uh, how did you? What did you find 
in the report in terms of you, how many or where and, and how did you arrive at that conclusion, you know, so long ago? Well, what was in my report isn't new information by any means. It was very clear from as early as, you know, 1906, 1907, when Peter Bryce um, wrote his report that these were terrible, dangerous places where children were dying in large numbers and nothing was done. And it was almost, well, pretty much 90 years before the last of these schools were closed. And throughout the hearings of the TRC, uh, testimony of survivors spoke repeatedly of illness and death um, within these schools. I was tasked very specifically with the problem of trying to identify where burial places might be at the various schools. Um, And that proved to be a much more difficult task than one might first think. Uh, Yeah, as, as as we are starting to see right now, Kat Krieger, do you have any inkling about how many children there might be buried in these places? Um, certainly more of them were officially documented, if I can use that phrase, although it doesn't seem to apply very well. The, you know, if we're seeing 750 in one location, 215 in another location, another hundred and some suspected in, in I believe, Brandon. Um, if we go across the country and, and, you know, anyone can really look at a map and see where the residential schools were located, we're, we're going to see so many more. I, I can't even begin to estimate. Um, it's almost a horrific thing to con. It is a horrific thing to contemplate. You know, while I was listening to, and, and greetings, Dr. Hamilton, good to hear your voice. Yeah. Um, while I was con- contemplating this, and I've spoken this, about this at assorted schools, um, almost anyone sending their children to school uh, here expects some degree of safety. You so much as get a scrape knee, you get a report on your children, how they're doing, what action was taken. Yet, you know, if I, if I look at the, the school system now that exists for our, our you know, our day-to-day uh, children, I, I really doubt there's any single school in Toronto, for instance, that also has a grave site. The mm-hmm. impact of a single student Losing a single student through accident, suicide, through whatever circumstances resonates through the whole school. Many of us might be familiar with this. It affects the staff, it affects the students, it affects the faculty. And yet here's what almost seems like it would have been a repetitive occurrence. Now, how do you, how do you bury two, 215 times you bury somebody? Um, you know, how is that not documented or recorded? Why is there not some... Um, that's got to be a marker that says there's, there's something wrong here. Speaking of, of the documentation, um, the Oblate Order has made a pledge to release the documents they have, but they say they're hampered by privacy laws. Do you buy that? Um, you know, I... I would imagine there is privacy laws, and I'm not a person of law, of course, but I think truth still needs to come out, and maybe there needs to be some changes made. And I think the, the changes are late in coming because they've, what, when laws like that protect you when you've done something wrong, then that's not correct. That's not what laws are for. Laws are for protecting people um, from things being done wrong to them. And answering for it. So I, I think there's, um, people need to answer for this. Dr. Hamilton, can you give us an idea of just the the difficulty of finding these graves, the, the expertise that is needed, you know, maybe time frames? Uh, I really can't. And primarily it's because we're at a very early stage of uh, addressing this. And 
the communities, the survivors, the families of children that were lost need time to reflect upon what they want to see happen. And that's not something that can be rushed. And until we have a sense of what needs to happen to go forward for each community, each family, it's very difficult to say what is the time and cost associated with those tasks. What about this technology of uh, using the radiation? You mean ground-penetrating radar? Right. Sorry. Um, Well, we have to be careful. We have to recognize that this technology uh, is a tool, and it has strengths and weaknesses. And we need to understand those strengths and weaknesses before we deploy that kind of equipment. And we need to understand the methodologies of data collection and data interpretation in order to comprehend the results that we do get from it. Um, this, is, this is not like a magic bullet or a magic wand. It, it takes a fair bit of sophisticated uh, experience utilizing this stuff in order to interpret the results appropriately. And are there enough people who have that knowledge? Uh, (laughs) Well, and remember, you're also using this technology in a number of different locations, different sediments, different vegetation cover, uh, to try and detect very small and subtle grave shafts. Uh, Sometimes there will be success sometimes not. Are there enough people with that expertise across the country to do this quickly? No. Um, we, I think what we're really looking at, if, if communities they decide that they want this to be done at a number of schools, we're going to have to engage in a process of upskilling um, uh, people in the use of the technology and also, more importantly, in the use of the analytic software in order to maximize the information return. Sounds very complicated. Kat Krieger, you're talking about the truth coming out. I mean, for a lot of non-Indigenous people, really, this is kind of the, the first we have heard about this or we know about this um, or, you know, maybe just the first time we have looked at this. What do you make of the response of people who are not Indigenous? What I'm, you know, what I'm hearing, um, and given the diversity of, of interactions with people in, like I say, some of the schools or, you know, a campus setting, there, there are many people who have come here from different lands. As, as one of them said, you know, I come here and learn about colonization. Um, and it was colonialism that sent me here in the first place, meaning they had to leave wherever they were to escape some kind of oppression or, or situation. To hear this is how Indigenous people's children were treated, it was staggering everyone that I've talked to. The idea, you know, whether they're parents of, uh, whether they're immigrants or or someone's parents are immigrants. And I I can imagine what it's like being in a situation where you need to leave the land that you grew up in uh, to come to Canada. What is Canada? And, you know, you you look for a safe place to bring your family and you look at Canada and read about it um, with with the what was available in history and think, here's a place where I can find hope and safety. And then you, you move here. Um, you know, you, you start reading and hearing all this, and you think, "Is this? If I'd known this, would I have brought my children here? Would this be the place I'd choose?" And the answer is often a, a resounding no. But now that we're here, and that response, the solidarity, the support I'm getting from from people I know, the number of communications I've received, all supporting, um, and you know, denouncing the idea of this horrific legacy. Uh, I think we need a new word other than legacy. Maybe we'll have to make one up, but certainly, you know, horror most of the time. 
And from the very students themselves, the young students especially, going, they can't imagine what it would be like to have an education system directed at a particular group of people that carried that, the ramifications that the residential schools did. Well, it's certainly a, a wrenching issue, and uh, there's so much more we have to learn about it. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much, Dr. Scott Hamilton and Kat Krieger, and I'm sure we will be revisiting this many times. We really appreciate your input. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Scott. Thank you, Libby. Um, uh, I want to mention that, you know, July 1st is coming up. There will be a walk in downtown Toronto that's starting at Dundas in Parliament around uh, 1030. And that is a, a walk of support. That's, that's one you can look up. And I think they'll be meeting at City Hall around 12, I'm, I'm guessing. Um, I'm uh, sure we thank you for sharing mm-hmm. that. And I'm sure we'll have more information on that. Sure. Um, thanks again. And that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon, excuse me, and welcome. It's Monday, time for our Zoomer squad, and I think today will be a bit of a watershed. The first time in ages we are not talking about the vaccine rollout, at least not directly. Some people are worried about post-pandemic inflation. We'll get to that. And many of us these last few days have been transfixed by the tragedy unfolding in Miami with the collapse of the beachfront building in Surfside. It's hard to comprehend that uh, no one has been found alive since the first few hours of the rescue, and only 10 people have been identified. Four Canadians from three different families are unaccounted for, and many, many Canadian Zoomers spend all or part of their winters in Florida. Many rent condos there. I'm sure a lot of people are worried. So let's begin with that. And let me give the numbers out before we go to our squad. The numbers 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Now I'd like to welcome the Zoomer Squads, David Kravitz, Vice President of Zoomer Media and Chief Membership Officer at CARP. Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP, and Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. Hi, everyone. Hi, Libby. Hello, everyone. Hi, Libby. Libby. So, David, let us begin with you. Uh, So many CARP members and other Zoomers go to Florida for the winter. Collins is this huge beachfront street. And, uh, you know, I I just have a feeling that when people rent a condo for a short period of time, they aren't worried about the structural safety. I don't think they're worried about I don't think they give it two seconds of thought until something like this comes along. Um, If you look at the uh, stated possible reasons having to do with salt water, salt in the air, eroding the foundations, an engineer's report from 2018 saying that there was a unacceptable level of damage or, or risk of damage in the underground parking lot. This is going to now trigger, of course, an examination of every building on that barrier island, which Miami Beach, Miami essentially is. And I think every condo board uh, in that part of the world is going to be, uh, if they haven't already, be talking to their lawyers and their engineers and and uh, suddenly it gives you something new to worry about. But uh, if you don't worry about it, maybe maybe you should. Yeah, Peter, uh, I, I mean, I'm assuming I, I've been transfixed by this. I remember staying in uh, parents' friend's apartment on Collins Avenue. Of course, it was probably around the time it was all built. <clears throat> but um, I'm sure this triggers something. And people also have property in Miami. And now they're thinking, what is that assessment going to be like? Yeah. And um, the, the ironic thing is, 
<clears throat> it appears that this building was being assessed uh, as a collapse, and, and there were site engineers on location um, looking at it, and then it collapsed under them. So uh, it was an older condo, and, um, well, I, I, I suppose if you say 80s is older, but, but a lot of condos went up in the boom in the 90s and the early 2000s that were really just slapped together. You know, they, they used, um, I remember there were stories of the uh, the Chinese drywall that was toxic and uh, the windows that leaked and the, you know, so the, these things went up to, um, you know, fulfill the demand of people who wanted to spend a winter in Florida. But uh, how many are like these? You know, like how, how many just went up quickly, weren't structurally sound, and uh, we'll have to see it in the review, because I imagine every single condo now is going to have to undergo a strenuous review. Well, uh, that's been ordered. But apparently, Bill, it was ordered before that you have to have an assessment at 40 years, which is where these buildings are at. There's a sister building and people there, I would imagine, are really worried. I'm sure that uh, everyone who is uh, living in a building that was built uh, around the same time and and use the same companies and tradespeople are concerned about them. And it does, you know, it is a larger question. We've had uh, issues in Canada over the years uh, about the quality of condos that they've been putting put up so quickly. And one of the problems, of course, with condos is once they're built, they get sold to the residents, the the uh, residence uh, board that runs them, and this ab- absolves the uh, original builders of a lot of the issues. So it really depends on local um, uh, uh, laws and uh, and uh, reviews of what's happening and standards for uh, for condos. And how do how does the person know when you? are living in, buying or renting a condo, especially in another country, uh, are you making sure that you are aware of what the uh, what the rules and regulations are around them? And I think this is going to cause a lot of people, not just people who uh, holiday in Florida, but uh, who go anywhere out of their own home, wanting to know more about how sure that they can be that their building is being built safely and, and being kept in a safe condition as it gets older. Well, I remember here, and I remember vaguely because I don't remember the details, but I know that there were issues, again, with builders of new condos and where the liability is. And I believe that uh, at a few points, the the rules, the laws were were tightened up. But yeah, that's one of the, the dangers with a condo is you buy a condo, there are condo fees, you, you budget that, but there's nothing to say that you won't get a huge assessment, Peter. Yeah, and, and uh, the problem is, 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 like when you're having a house built, you can go to the site and look at it, or if you're buying in development, you can, you can look at the quality the builders, uh, the, the builders are, are following and the products they're using. But when a condo goes up in Florida or... You know, before you move into one in here, you just you just don't know what the what the uh, standards are, and and because because they're so popular now, um, and so many are going up in such tight spaces everywhere, including Florida. Um, you know, you just how how are we going to assure that that they're going up with uh, you know sound uh, building standards and not just being uh, slapped up quickly to to uh, you know time the market? Well. Uh, my understanding is that the building codes in Florida are pretty strict. It's just that the, uh, the, the climate is pretty aggressive there. These, these things are on the beach. And, and David, one of the things that was said about the people are quoting this report from 2018, which cited these deficiencies, but nowhere apparently did it say this is really urgent and you've got to get on this uh, ASAP. I think there was some strong language about the importance of it. What was missing, and I don't think you can fault the engineer in hindsight, was if you don't fix this, this building's going to collapse. And I think one of the the problems here is we've had cases here with uh, lawsuits and condos, but it's generally been around water damage or ill-fitting windows or leak. The, the, there was leakage from the floor above because the sealant was there. But we've never had something that threatens the entire uh, ability of the building to keep standing. This is a very unusual uh, occurrence, and I don't see how the average buyer 
uh, can be satisfied uh, that a building is not going to collapse. I mean, that's just a pretty, uh, you know, rare, 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 rare occurrence. Uh, in this case, I think, though, that um, that 40-year, they were right on the cusp of that 40-year um you know, problem. And I think clearly the building was originally constructed so that it could stand. It didn't collapse, but the, apparently the salt water or the salt in the air worked away at it and worked away at it and eroded it. So I'm not sure what you would have seen when you bought it. Uh, and remember, we're also talking these suites were $700,000. This is not a, a down market, uh, thrown together uh, building. And uh, the oceanfront side is what collapsed. I think that going forward is what's going to change. And I think going forward, there's going to be much more attention paid to the structural engineering of it. And can it withstand? And what's the whole future of building on these barrier islands where you've got uh, salt in the air pounding away at you for decade after decade? And and of course, there's the question of of how much of this is because of climate change. Uh, You know, I mean, the, the, the lawyers for the condo board said, first of all, and, you know, I get this, that doesn't make sense. The people on the condo board, uh, a vice president and her entire extended family is missing. So if they had known, uh, you'd think that they, they wouldn't be caught up in this in, in such a horrible way. And, and COVID delayed this because this thing was underweight and, and uh, underway. And, and, um, Bill, they had to raise, you know, $9.1 million in a credit facility. Well, they, they do. And that's one of the other uh, issues that, uh, uh, folks have to look at when they're talking about using, buying a condo either uh, as a vacation property or right here in our own country. And that is uh, when uh, changes uh, are needed. We hear many stories uh, uh, where they are that even more newly built uh, condos, the condo board discovers that renovations are uh, required. And then there's a huge cost uh, to doing that. Uh, Boards are uh, assigned opposition from people uh, uh, within the community who don't want to uh, uh, pay those extra assessments. So it's, it's not an easy decision and not, uh, and not as carefree to be in a condo as somebody who is now looking after their own home uh, might, might think. And this just underlines uh, the kind of issues that are involved. Yeah. I mean, uh, for, I guess, uh, in general, Peter, people who are thinking, okay, uh, maybe I'll, I'll 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 sell the big house that I have to take care of, and I'll move into a condo, and I just turn the key. Maybe not so much. Maybe not so much, Libby. <laughs> yeah, and they're you know, Toronto. Like you can see from from where you are, from where you're broadcasting, you can see cranes all over Toronto. You know, all over downtown with new condos going up and tiny footprints, and um, you know, I I hope it doesn't happen, but it, there there is. You know, there's no guarantee that it's not going to happen here. I remember, and this is so vague, um, the first place I owned was in Ottawa. It it was uh, a condominium. It was a low rise, and there there were issues because it had a flat roof. Uh, There's a lot of snow in Ottawa, piles up on the roof. And uh, I I don't remember exactly what the deal was, but it it was a problem, and there were issues of liability. Right, and and uh, so as Bill was saying, like it's not, it's not a matter of selling your big home and moving into a condo, and and that's the end of your worries. You know, they, there's there's always going to be something. Moving right along, since we are talking about money, um, Bill, a lot of uh, Zoomers, CARP members are worried about uh, inflation post pandemic. I mean, a lot of things are already quite a bit more expensive. Well, that, uh, that's certainly true, Libby, and, and uh, we're hearing from more and more of our CARP members that they're once again very concerned about uh, how their money will, uh, will last, how their investments uh, will do. They've seen costs going up uh, because of uh, COVID. Many of them have, have said to us that, you know, we, we look at the uh, cost of living, the Stats Canada statistics, uh, uh, put out, but our costs are going up higher uh, than that. The kinds of things that are in the 
uh, the, in the senior so-called basket of goods is looked at uh, in the cost of, in the uh, uh, general cost of living are not the same things that that a senior or older adult has, and they're very uh, very concerned both about uh, increased costs now and the threat of inflation uh, later as things begin to settle down on the on the COVID front. But uh, but uh, prices always. Uh, go down much more slowly than they went up. <laughs> what is in that senior's basket? Does anyone know? Well, didn't like, did anything ever come of? Uh, nothing came of it. I think of Trudeau's promise, which he made at the CARP building about a senior's uh, in, uh, index uh, price index bill. Did, did yeah. nothing ever no, came of that? Right? right? No, no, nothing. No, you're right, Peter. That never happened. So, you what know? is in the senior's basket bill? Well, the, the senior the seniors basket put has has uh, more emphasis, a higher emphasis on on many of the things that people use when they're not uh, they're not going to work. So uh, they they would spend uh, uh, less on say clothing uh, to go to work, uh, less on uh, uh, transfer, uh, transportation, more on uh, on medicines and and uh, pharmaceuticals. More on uh, renovations that have to take place in their their house. More on uh, uh, the the, uh, the the kind of things that they need uh, as they get older in terms of specialized uh, equipment and mobility equipment and that sort of thing, and uh, uh, less on uh, on other things that were more related to them as employees or. Uh, uh, people going out to work every day. On the other hand, David, uh, I, Zoomers and everybody else who has been fortunate enough not to be hit financially by this, uh, there's a lot of pent-up demand. There's a lot of unspent money. There is a lot of pent-up demand, and I think it's important to uh, note here, and I we've come back to this theme a couple of times, that the the size of the cohort, if you take 65 as being the retirement age, the size of the cohort is so large now that it's no surprise that there are different segments who are affected uh, unequally or differently. Um, so some people are going to be fine, um, uh, you know, especially if their housing costs are stable. Uh, others are not. We're hearing pent-up demand for travel, and I know our own uh, advertisers and, and travel benefit partners are reporting upticks in interest and in bookings into next year. But on the other hand, um, that's an area of discretionary spending a lot of people can cut back on if they have to, if they don't have the money. Um, so you, you're going to see this. It's, it's going to be dangerous to, to say it's all, it's all one or all the other. Just too many people in the, in the cohort now, uh, north of six million people uh, past the traditional age of retirement. So I think both of them are going to be true. I think there is going to be pent-up demand, but I think there's going to be a lot of caution. And even the people that perceive of themselves as financially okay are still going to be cautious because when you're on a fixed income, even if it's a relatively large income, your mindset tends to be, uh, you know, cautious. But, you know, also, on the other other hand, uh, and especially for younger Zoomers, these days, because of the way interest rates have been, people remain fully invested in the markets, and the markets have been unbelievable. You know, people who are retired, but who are invested in the market, Peter, have uh, made a lot of money. They've done well, Libby, for sure. And and also um, for for the younger Zoomers, um, they spent the you know the last part of their lives paying down a mortgage that was you know two percent three percent you know so uh, they they've had the benefit of uh, low interest rates and uh, really healthy market returns so so for them you know and and now their house is worth a lot more than it was when they bought it as well so that that's one of the benefits of inflation is that you know they're, they're uh, Principal residence is, it has gone up as well, so um, it cuts both ways. Yeah, and and David, back to what you alluded to, and I actually uh, just had a um, a segment on this uh, on last Sunday's yesterday's Zoomer Week in Review with Vivian Vassos, who is uh, does all the travel coverage for Zoomer Magazine. But there's a huge amount 
a pent up demand. And, uh, you know, she predicts people will actually be spending a little more because they've got some some extra cash. I think that's true. I think the so the travel market, if I'm in the travel market, um, I'm not a you know, I'm automatically not catering to every single senior. Uh, there's there's pockets of poverty. There's people who have been dealt out of that market uh, on the grounds of poverty before and still are and still will be. But the people that are spending uh, will be spending more. But I think that the mix might change. I think that we're hearing a lot more interest in maybe let's start with Canada. Let's go to where I haven't seen before. Yeah. Uh, maybe not so eager to go on a cruise. You know, they're hearing that cruises are, are problematic, whether they are or not. I, you know, I'm talking about perception. Well, the, you can't so, yeah. get, apparently, uh, and alert this uh, uh, on one of our shows here, until the threat level or the whatever it's called goes down on cruises, you cannot buy uh, travel medical insurance if you're going right. on a cruise. That's correct. However... Um, one of our cruise advertisers here told me that when you're looking at the spring of next year and the summer of next year, it's starting to book up. Yes. Yes. Not before Definitely. then. No, <laughs> no. There's a, and, and look at even the fear of inflation. There's a, there's a sort of a settling in period. I mean, if you, if you look at the debate in the U S yelling the the uh, Treasury Secretary, there's this hot debate about uh, is inflation temporary because you've got this artificial snapback as the pandemic gets lifted and 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 gas prices and the for the price at the pump is like skyrocketing uh, in the U.S. and it'll come here if it's not already. Uh, but she's saying no, no, it's temporary. It's a technical, uh, you know. The elastic springs back and then it'll start to moderate out again. And nobody knows for sure. So there's that debate. Is it, is it just a, a blip because of the pent up demand or are there permanent supply problems that are going to lead to higher prices? And, um, that's much more worrisome than, uh, you know, tuck in for another month and uh, the prices are going to come down again. For seniors also, I think, going back to Bill's point about the, what's in the basket, I think food is obviously a big worry. Do we need a cutback on what we're And it's more expensive, healthy, boy. Healthy foods, you know, fruits and vegetables and stuff, which tend to be more expensive. I, so. I can attest to that. It certainly is more expensive. And, and you know, you mentioned the supply chain. David, and I wonder, are, you know, supply chains going to change permanently because of what happened here? Uh, Bill, you mentioned that you were you were featured in a story in the Toronto Star over the weekend, and you mentioned that people look at what happened to inflation after the 1919-1920 the pandemic. So well, tell us about that. Yeah, well, uh, they did, of course, after the uh, after the uh, pan, uh, the Spanish flu uh, pa- pandemic, uh, uh, inflation uh, set in. Costs were up for for many reasons. Uh, we also went in uh, into into the war years, and following the the, the war years, we had the uh, uh, the crash in the in the twenties, and that's the kind of thing that people are looking back on and saying, "Is it the is it the same, or is it?" Uh, is it entirely different? We don't have to worry about it. The economists we've talked to differ on their opinion of, of how we how we can relate the two situations. But what what it's causing is a lot of unease in in older adults who were already concerned about whether or not they would outlive uh, their their money as they live uh, live longer, uh, and uh, and they don't and they they don't know. There's a there's a lot of uh, un- there's a lot of un- uncertainty. One of the the things that we do know from from those uh, years was that that costs uh, uh, costs went up. That that uh, they thought that they had inflation under uh, control, and they and and they didn't. And uh, people, you know, uh, Zoomers just uh, many of us just have to look back to 2008 and see what happened uh, happened then and how it got out of control. Even though there seem to be assurance from uh, uh, from financial leaders that that uh, uh, could never could never happen. So, uh, you know, and part of the, you know, the decision making that, that an older Canadian has to make is they're they're wondering about spending their money, whether they're going to 
travel, whether they're going to increase the, their uh, uh, income, is that what, what is going to happen in the short run and how long can I, can I wait? If you're 80 years old and you're hoping to take a major trip, uh, do you really want to put it off for four years? Can you can you risk never being able to that trip if you decide to go when you're 84 and and not when you're 80? So what we are hearing from them is uh, no matter which way it goes and no matter what kind of advice they get, uh, financial security is a huge worry among uh, many of our older Canadians no matter what their income level. Well, well, yeah, and I, I would agree with you there, uh, David, uh, you know, that, that people who are older, this kind of pause is really making a lot of them kind of think twice, saying, I, the, I have my bucket list. I have things I want to do while I'm still in good shape. And of course, you know, no one knows how long that's going to last. And I think that will be driving uh, a lot of decisions. I, I think you're completely correct there because what's what we're really talking about here is an overlay of caution. Now, as a result of that caution, the spending may still occur, but it's not as freewheeling. It's not as you know free and easy as if you don't have those those worries and those cautions. And I think to some extent, it has always been part of the mindset of people on fixed incomes, even if that's a high income. I mean, you just have to look at, we were talking, we started our discussion with South Florida, and uh, I can recall very well visiting with friends in <clears throat> Boca Raton and, and watching retirees at that time who have a couple hundred thousand dollars a year in interest just flowing into their um, bank accounts still lining up for the all-you-can-eat early bird <laughs> Because in their mind, you know, I used to be making a million dollars a year, and I'm only making 200000 I mean, it's, I know it's weird to say it, but there's, it a, is there's pretty a mindset. Weird. It's mindset of, I just you know, I want to have a good life. I'm eating well. I'm sure, but, but you know what? I'm just, I'm just tucking in a little bit. There's that veil of caution, and I think that's going to be uh, exacerbated now. Okay, I, th I think that's something that we're going to have to touch on. Again, Peter, I'm going to give you the last word. Yeah, um, with, with inflation rising, uh, you know, one thing to look out for is uh, interest rates going up. So uh, they often go together, and uh, that's something we can, we can look out for down the road. Okay. On that note, thanks so much to our Zoomer squad, Peter Mugridge, Bill Van Gorder, and David Kravitz. Thanks. Thanks, Libby. Thank you, Libby. Thanks, Libby. We are going to take a break, and when we come back, we are going to talk some more about the horrible discoveries of unmarked graves of Indigenous children on the sites of two former residential schools with the expectation that we are going to make more of these gruesome discoveries in the future when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.